Well, good morning, Humeridge. You doing well? That's good. What a good morning it's been, and thank you so much for making us so welcome. Um, I came with my family, and my kids really enjoyed the fruit platter and the pastries that we ate out the back before. Uh, and it, they're looking. Didn't you know that whoever preaches gets that sort of service? You pay for that. Maybe in more ways than one. Anyway, it, it is such a, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. You you are a great church. And you're a very significant church in the life of the city um, for so many reasons. Hosting Global Leadership Summit, uh, I've been to that over the years and what a great thing it is and thank you for hosting that. But thank you for being such a blessing to the Christian community in the city and beyond that, to the city itself. Um, you, you really are making a difference. So keep going, keep going. Uh, last week, I preached in a very Pentecostal church here in town. I think if you were going to award the most Pentecostal church in Toowoomba, you would award it to this church I'm not going to tell you what that church was, I don't want to publicly name it. We had a great time. Uh, what I found really encouraging though, that I want to encourage you with this morning, is the way that they are so interactive when you preach. So rather than just laughing when I say something funny, I was testing, that wasn't funny, you didn't need to laugh there, but I want to give you a few options. If I say something that you like, that you agree with, that you think is great, you can do, I come from a Baptist tradition, you can do the Baptist thing and hum, like go... Like Mm, mm, mm. but I won't be able to hear you so let, let's work it up a bit the next option you can you can have is amen you can say an amen out loud okay I'll give you permission to do that this morning Murray's away he'll find out later and he might like it too but he, he, if you want to if you really want to go out there there's two options that, that work for you if, if uh, you really get excited the first one if you hear something that you love and you, and you get really excited is come on and the other one that is that is really out there is that's good Okay, come on and that's good. So if I hear that this morning, I know I'm doing well. But one thing I said to this church last week was that I actually confessed to them that if, it wasn't that long ago where I never would have stepped foot in a church like that. I had a real fear of Pentecostals. I had a real fear of what they were about and what they would do to me if I went into their presence. And I felt this way until I actually met some Pentecostals and realized that they weren't that bad. And I, and I said to them, and I want to say to you this morning as well, that I've actually had two conversions in my life. Now, before you accuse me of some wacky theology, let, let me finish. I've had two conversions in my life, and they both were genuine conversions, genuine significant changes in the way that I thought about things. The first one was the big one, and that was a conversion to Jesus. I mean, he took me from the kingdom of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of light. I was lost, I was found, I was blind, and then I could see. And that was an incredible conversion, like far outweighing the, one, the next one I'm about to share. But the next one was a conversion. I had to change the way I thought. And that was a conversion to see the body of Christ in a city and the unity of, of the church in a city. I, I, thank you. That's good. I heard that one. Thank you. You see, what, 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 what I used to think, and, and like I said, I came from a Baptist background. I'm a retired Baptist minister. Um, that sounds so much better than former Baptist minister. Anyway, I used to think that back, back here, 2,000 years ago, Jesus and the apostles metaphorically poured some pure gospel water into the, into the top of the mountain where the river began. Right, that, <laughs> that's what he did. He poured the water in. And down through human history and the history of the church, that original river has branched out into many different streams and many different rivers and many different places. And what my role is, was later on as a, Baptist, as a Baptist church person, a Baptist minister, was to say all the reasons why my stream or my river was the most purest form of that original pouring in back there. Oh, 
That's gold. I love that. That was beautiful. I want to say, like, I, I, always, I always thought that Baptists and churches of, of Christ were, like, so close together and, you know, we're, we're one and the same. And I, I've sung that song we sung before a few times, but the Church of Christ was born. Like, that's your song. That's like the origins, right? Anyway, let's stay on track. So, th- and, and everything about what I had to do was to say, this, this water here that I'm swimming in and that I'm playing in with my Baptist friends is the most purest expression of that way back there. Not only was I meant to do that, but I was actually, it was part of my job to point out why you shouldn't swim in those other rivers, why you shouldn't swim in those other streams, because they're a bit, they're a bit stagnant or they've got a bit of sewerage running in and you don't want to swim in that stream. You don't want to swim in that Pentecostal stream because they do things wrong. This is how I used to think. And I, I, it's, we're all good because I confessed this to a Pentecostal church last week. What I see now though, and, and this has been my conversion, is not, not seeing it as a river and each stream claiming to be the most purest expression of the original river, but to see the church in the city like a garden and there's good soil and Jesus throws his seed into that good soil and out of that soil grows a beautiful garden and a garden is beautiful because of its diversity. A garden is not beautiful if all the flowers are the same, if you have all the flowers the same, that, that's not a garden, that's like a production line. That's the, you, you, if you've got all sunflowers, you're probably making sunflower oil or something. But a garden, a garden is beautiful through its diversity. This works in Toowoomba, right? We're coming into spring, we're coming into the carnival of flowers. And if you, go, you will go to gardens and the most beautiful gardens will be the ones that are the most diverse. And so no longer will I look and say, Oh, look at that stream, you shouldn't swim in that. But hey, look at that blue flower over there, isn't it beautiful? Look at that red one over there, that's magnificent. We're all flowers and we're all grown out from what Jesus has sown in, but we're different and the beauty is in the diversity. So, Humeridge, you are a beautiful yellow flower. Even though you have this... No, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. You are a beautiful yellow flower and keep being the brightest, most beautiful yellow flower that you can be but also celebrate and point and look at other flowers and say, you're beautiful, you red rose. That's the limit of my knowledge of flowers. <laughs> so I'm going to stop there. But other flowers have different colours and let's, let's be a church in the city that celebrates the diversity of the church because it's a beautiful thing and God is tending his garden. So we're in spring and our spring has sprung and you wouldn't know it this morning... <laughs> But you'd know it from a couple of days ago, the smell in the air, that change of season is such a beautiful thing. And if, if you're into uh, gardening and all that sort of thing, it's a beautiful time of year. Um, there's a place I love to go and it's in Victoria. My dad, when he uh, finished up working, he, he shouted himself a farm, as you do. And uh, I want to show you a photo of it because this is how beautiful it is, Be- more beautiful than the back of my head. Um, that's, that's the place where I love to go. It's a long way away from here. But my goodness, as soon as I drive down the driveway, uh, I instantly relax and chill out. It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. Um, this, this rock wall and this, this beautiful mud brick house that was hand-built and all that sort of thing. But what I really want you to pay attention to is that Japanese, or I'm not sure if it's a Japanese, it's a maple tree, right? The big red one on the left there. That's my favourite part of my dad's farm. To sit under that tree and pray and read or do whatever else is just a magnificent most uh, soul-relaxing and restoring place, probably that I can think of on earth. Beautiful tree. So what I've I've tried to do in my house (laughs) 
is recreate some of that. No gut, my, my, thumb, my thumbs are blue, they're, they're not green at all. But I've tried to recreate some of, this is in a little town called Musk, so I've tried to recreate some of Musk in my own, in my own backyard. And when my dad was up here recently for my 40th birthday, he bought me a Japanese maple. And this was my dream, right? That tree on the left, this was my dream. This next photo is the reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go. Next photo, thanks, yep. That's what my Japanese maple <laughs> looks like and it's very depressing. Nothing like, you get a bit of a glimpse into my backyard too, there's a bit more work to be done. This is my Japanese maple and I started to get really worried and I was texting my dad and taking photos and saying, this doesn't seem right, dad, this doesn't seem like how it should be. It, it looks, actually looks dead. It looks like it's got no, and it was expensive too, but my dad bought it for me so I'm not too worried about it. But it, it looks dead, it looks like it's beyond repair. I went back to the shop where I'd bought this from to have a look at the other Japanese maples and they, praise Jesus, <laughs> look very similar to this one. But it struck me that springtime is a, is a season that comes directly after winter. And winter is a time when things die. Winter is a time when in nature things die and seeds fall to the ground. And, and, and what that pre, precedes is this time of spring where we get new life. And my Japanese maple, thank you for taking the picture down, I, I, I would hope that if I came back in a few months' time and showed you a picture, you would see new life. You would see new life. It seems that God has written into His natural world, into the natural order of things, that for things to grow and for things to have new life, it must and only ever come after death. That's what spring's about. New life, but new life only after death. And I want to I show you this morning that what God has woven into nature, He has also woven in as a key principle in His kingdom. That life, new life, only comes after death. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And of course, Jesus here, clearly, as we, most of us will know, is talking here about his death and how through his own death, he brings life to humanity, the potential for life to humanity. He's talking about him dying and being hung on the cross, crucified so that we could have life and we just celebrated that life through communion together. It was Jesus' death that brought the potential for new life in his kingdom. Let me just talk a little bit about that kingdom so we can have a bit of a framework for this. I, I was reading a book recently by a guy called Tim, Tim Foster and he said this word kingdom, it doesn't really translate in 2019 in Australia. So uh, he, he proposes this new description of the kingdom as God's new order, his, his new way of doing things, his, his order and particularly makes sense in light of the old order, the, the, the worldly order, the order of, of those who haven't yet discovered the kingdom of God. And so this old order is marked by things like self-interest and greed and exploitation, the abuse of power, poverty, social isolation, relationship breakdown and ecological disorder. These are the things that mark the, the order of the world, the kingdom of darkness. And then Jesus comes along. 
Jesus comes along and through his life, death, death and resurrection makes a new order, a new way possible. So Jesus' life, the way he lived, we don't just go straight to his death. We look at the way he lived and the way he lived actually shows this new order. It shows the new way of doing things. He shows the new life that is, that is possible for humanity. In fact, the life that we were meant to live, he shows it. Jesus wasn't superhuman. He was perfectly human. We are all subhuman. And so Jesus, as he comes and lives his life, shows the life of the new order. But we need more than that. We need more than that. He needed to die. He needed to die to make the new way possible for the rest of us. He needed to deal with the thing that was keeping us chained up in this old order. And he did it through his death. So his death makes the new way, the new order possible. And then he comes back to life. He rises from the dead. And this is to show, this is the beginning of the new way. This is the entry of the new order into the world. And and through his resurrection, we have this hope and we have this potential to live like Jesus. He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in this new way. And so God's new order has come. The kingdom has come on earth right now, like it did back then. And it's here now. We're not just hanging around waiting to die and go to heaven and, 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 and have this eternal life. God's kingdom has come and it's outworking itself even in our city. And so there's implications here, there's there's personal implications, there's a new way to be human, there's a new humanity to experience, a new identity, new meaning, new values that define who we are. There's ecological implications. This is something that I think the church needs to recapture and re-understand. The earth itself is groaning in anticipation for the sons sons of God to be revealed. There is a new way to relate to the world to steward it, to, to, to do things in order, to, res- to bring restoration, ecological implications. And then, of course, there are social implications. And here we are today. There is a new way to be community. Jesus said, by the way you love each other, that will show the world that you belong to me. And so this new community is reconciled. There's so much in the New Testament about how we treat one another and how we deal with one another and how we deal with stuff when it, when it compromises that. We are, we are a community that is being transformed but also bringing transformation. And so this new kingdom way is beautiful. This new kingdom way is exciting. Like I said, we're not waiting around until we die or until Jesus comes back. There is life to be lived, this new life, but it's only possible through the death of Jesus. The key reality of this new order is that death brings life. Right after Jesus saying this about the kernel of wheat, unless it dies and falls to the ground, it remains only one seed. But if it dies and falls, it creates this potential for many seeds. And here we are, many seeds. Right after that, the very next sentence, Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I think in other words, Jesus is saying, if you live according to the old order, you're going to lose but if you embrace this new life, if you embrace this new way, this new order, you will, you will have life eternally starting now. The, the good news of the gospel, the great news of the gospel is not just that we have our ticket to heaven. The great news of the gospel is that this new life is possible right now. Right now. But it's only possible if it's preceded by death. Jesus, I think, wants us to understand that it's not just his death that we need to be thinking about here. It's my death. It's your death. It's our death. 
Paul writes in Romans 6, um, verses 5 to 8, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, our self that was committed to the old order, that was a part of that, was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin now. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Present tense. We will also live with Him now. This isn't about life after we die. This is about life now. Life in the kingdom. Life in the new order. And I think not only is this a principle at our, at our conversion and with our salvation that we embrace the death of Jesus, but there's a continual, almost daily, almost moment by moment dying to self that is a principle of the kingdom of God that we as citizens of the kingdom, as people of the kingdom, need to embrace. It means, embracing this new order, means continually dying to the old order, to the old way of doing things. Jesus teaches about the, the, the kingdom using parables and I love some of the parables in Matthew 13. I haven't heard any commons or that's good for a while, probably because I'm talking about death um, or just generally doing a bad job, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to keep going. My, my two favourite parables about the kingdom, um, probably because I've got a shortest attention span, they're the shortest parables, um, but, I, but more than that, I think they're just so punchy and they give us so much insight into God's new order the new order. So Jesus teaches in Matthew 13 these two parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Notice the slight subtle difference between these two people. The first one is just doing his work. You get the impression that this, this, uh, this guy is a, a farmer and he's doing his thing. It looks like he's doing his thing in someone else's property. Uh, and so he's, not the, he's a hired hand and he's, he's, hunt, he's just digging, digging, doing whatever he's farming for and he dig and finds this treasure in a field. And his joy, his joy, his, his, the thrill that he has of discovering this treasure, he goes and sells everything that he owns and buys the field to have the treasure. But the, the merchant looking for, for pearls, he's looking for pearls. He's on the hunt. He, he's, he's seeking after pearls. He's trying to figure out where the best one is and, and, and really working hard to find it. And, but then when he finds it, man, he, he does the same thing as the farmer. goes and sells everything he had and exchanges all that to have this treasure. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying here, and this is helpful for someone like me who often tries too hard to be funny. If I tell a good joke... What's your natural reaction? You'll laugh. If I tell a bad joke, a cough. Yeah, awkward cough. I heard that over there. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying here is when someone discovers the kingdom, whether they're looking for it or not, the most appropriate and natural reaction is to give up everything you once knew, everything that you once had and owned. All of those priorities, all of the resources that you cared about, the most appropriate reaction when you discover the kingdom is to give all that up to have this new thing. That's the most appropriate reaction. Everything that we once knew and thought was important dies to have this new thing. 
And this, this understanding of, of these really beautiful parables, but also actually really challenging and confronting, because the immediate question is, have I done that? Have I given up everything I once knew and everything I once thought was important to have this new way, this new order, this kingdom of God? Have I done that? Have you done that? So there's a challenge there, but it also speaks of the beauty of the kingdom of God. This, this beautiful realization that this is what it means to be human. This is the way God intended things. And I can have this kingdom because Jesus died and rose again. But the other thing this helps me to do when I understand these two parables is to double back on a parable that Jesus taught that's also recorded in Matthew 13, but one that makes us feel a little bit awkward. Okay, so let me go back to verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. I feel like an enemy's been in my backyard, by the way. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Why then did the, where did the, then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because you are, while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them in, bring it into my barn. So more often than not, Jesus tells a parable like this and just leaves it. <laughs> he says this annoying thing, let he who has ears, let him hear. It's like, well, good story. But thankfully, with this one, he explains it. And these are the parables I like to preach about. So he left, he left the crowd, his disciples came to him, his disciples came and said, Jesus, can you explain to us please the parable of the weeds in the field? Because we've had a chat amongst ourselves and we just don't get it. What are you saying? Thankfully, Jesus didn't say straight away, let him, he, whoever has ears, let them hear. He said, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Awesome. As the weeds are pulled up and burn in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Just imagine that the disciples, when Jesus explains one, were just totally flawed and totally silent like whoa that was intense but I, what i don't understand about this it, it, it like i think i think there's a there's sort of a clear main point to this parable but I, I still struggle to understand why would jesus say no don't try and weed out the weeds don't try and do that because i think but god like you know when, when you understand that the weeds that we're talking about here looked a lot like the wheat i think jesus is saying that sometimes these these weeds might even be in the church these weeds might even be sitting amongst us this morning. Turn and look at the person next to you with a suspicious look on your face. <laughs> Unless it's your husband or wife and then just give them a kiss on the cheek. But why would, why would Jesus say, don't, don't worry about that? And it just seems so nonchalant, I don't worry about it. Why, why is he cool with the weeds growing up with the wheat? What, aren't we meant to be out in the city trying to figure out who the evil people are and trying to deal with them and bring justice and all that sort of thing? And, and, and 
actually, the most important question I have is, aren't those weeds going to damage the wheat? Aren't those weeds somehow going to compromise the wheat? Isn't the presence of evil in the church and in the city, isn't that going to mess with the people of the kingdom? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Why not? Well, here's what I think is going on. And it relates to the earlier two parables I read that actually come after this one. And I I started to understand this when I actually got a bit of a picture of what weeds do and the reason why when weeds are growing, it makes it hard for good plants to grow. And this is is from a a website called environment.gov.au. So it sounds authoritative. (laughs) Found through Google. Okay. But this is what it said. This is what it told me. Weeds aggressively compete for water, water, nutrients and sunlight, resulting in reduced crop yield and poor crop quality. This is what weeds do in the natural world. I used to think that weeds actually had a poison in them that poisoned other plants. That's not the picture here. Weeds actually fight harder for the resources that are in the soil, making it hard for a good plant to get what it needs to survive, right? So if if that's what weeds do to wheat and, and to other plants, I start to go, well, okay... But then again, isn't this going to make it hard for the people of God if if the weeds are present? I go, no, no. Because when Jesus says the, the, the kingdom is like the guy finds a treasure in the field and the pearl, they actually get rid of all their earthly resources. They get rid of everything that they knew was, they thought was important, all of their priorities, and they, they suddenly get all their resources from the kingdom. And I go, aha. The reason why we can not worry about this is because the people of the kingdom aren't fighting for the same resources that the weeds are fighting for anymore. That's no longer a priority for the people of the kingdom. Or at least it shouldn't be. Again, is it to you? Is it for me? These these things we thought were so important when when we didn't know the kingdom. Money, wealth, popularity... The, the need to be needed, all these things that we, we were so wrapped up in and so tied up in when we discovered the kingdom. We no longer needed to fight for those resources anymore. Is that your story? Or do they still have their tendrils around your ankles? And do you still think it's important to fight for those resources? What needs to die today? What needs to die See, there, there's this principle of the kingdom of God where the kingdom is established through death. Jesus dies. It's the only way the kingdom could come. He rises again and it comes in power. The only way that we can be with Jesus in that is to die to ourselves. And that initial conversion, that initial salvation moment for us was a realization that Jesus was right. And what he said was true. And in that moment, we realized the sin that we had in our lives and we confessed that and we we let that die in us so that we could come to life in Jesus. And that's symbolized by our baptism. But you see, there's this ongoing battle that goes on in us that where old things must die because those things can still have a grip on us, that the the resources and the priorities of the world that still uh, compete for our attention, those things continually need to be put to death. No, I'm, I'm not a part of that order anymore. I'm not going to fight for those resources. I'm not going to fight with the weeds for those resources anymore because I have a new resource in Jesus who says he'll give me living water, who says he is the bread of life. I don't need to fight for that anymore. I don't need to have that. That's not a priority for me anymore. I need to put that to death. 
And I think, I think this plays out so powerfully for us as individuals, but also as a church community. And I really want to commend you as Humeridge Church because from someone who's an outsider, you, I see you guys embracing this. You guys are leading the way in engaging with refugees, new Australians. You, you're leading the charge. You're teaching the other churches in the city how to do that. But you know what? That actually requires so much self-sacrifice. If, if, to, to, to work with people who don't speak good English, to, don't speak English well. <laughs> um, and, to, and to serve them and, and to do all the things that you guys are doing, that requires a sacrifice of your own comfort. It requires a sacrifice of, you, of your church resources to do that. Yeah, you guys have a history of planting other churches, the, the other churches of Christ in the area. You guys, they came from here. That requires self-sacrifice. If you're going to plant healthy churches, unfortunately, there's a lot of churches that, are, that aren't planted healthily. They're planted very unhealthily and they're planted with selfish motives, like we need a pure theology or we, we want to do things that we want to do. That's not church planting, that's, that's something else. But you guys have planted healthy churches and that required self-sacrifice because it requires being far more outward looking than inward looking and that's part of your story here you've done that maybe you'll do it again in the future i don't know you guys engage so powerfully and intentionally with younger generations and younger generations to work with them and to hand the baton over and to work to see them raised up to see them given opportunities that requires the sacrifice of the older generations and I'm sure there are other examples of this in action at Humeridge. And I feel like, again, you're at that place of a new day as a church. I mean, you can see that visually, the visual changes that have happened. But it seems to me, I've met with Murray a couple of times. What a great guy, by the way. You guys have done really well there. I'd love to be where he is right now. As in... Overseas, I mean, not... yeah. But for this new day to begin, for this new day to begin, it may have already, I may be way off, off track here, but for that new day to begin, the old has to die. The old has to die. To be in passionate pursuit of Jesus is to put to death old, conflicting passions. Let me just remind you of what I've said this morning before I wrap it up. There, there is no way to have eternal life outside of Jesus. We die with Him so that we may also be raised with Him. But much more than this, life with Jesus in this life means death to the ways of the old order. The priorities we once had, the resources we once, we once fought for, there's death there and there needs to be ongoing death, daily death to those, to those things to embrace the new life we have in Christ. But I want to say, in relation to what I was just talking about with Hume Ridge and where you guys are at, there's one more arena where death must come if we're to embrace the springtime of new life. And this thing might seem a bit weird and a bit wrong when I first say it, but believe me, it's true. Death needs to come to the things that God has done in the past. Things that God has done in the past. There's this incredible, ridiculous story in Numbers 21. 
you know, for God's people. Moses is told by God, see, Moses, there's, you know what that story is like, these guys just keep on complaining and whinging and bad stuff happens and they keep having to repent all the time and it's just like this 40 years of who are we, what are we doing? There's this one time when they're complaining, so God, <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking, he sends some venomous snakes in amongst them to bite them. That seems like a good uh, members meeting. <laughs> Sticks a whole bunch of snakes in there and these, these guys are getting bitten and they're starting to die. And so Moses is like, God, what do I do? God's, God says to Moses, okay, here's my plan. <laughs> Get some bronze, fashion a serpent out of it, a snake, hold it up and everyone who looks at it will be healed. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's, doesn't, that's just so counterintuitive. It seems really stupid and laughable. And yet that's what happens and everyone who looks at the bronze snake is healed. If you were there that day... You, you would never forget it. You would never forget that. You're there dying. You, you, whatever happens when a snake bites you, blood, whatever. And you look at this snake and you can feel the poison leaving your body. You would never forget that, right? That would be incredible. Over 700 years later, that bronze snake is still in the temple. This is a bronze snake that God told Moses to make. Through this bronze snake, Moses, I am going to do something incredible, ridiculous, that will be written in the history of my people until 2019. And Sam's going to talk about it at Humeridge Church. That's how remarkable this thing is that's, that I'm going to do through this bronze snake. 700 years later, that bronze snake is still in the temple and the Israelites are burning incense to it. And this king Hezekiah comes along. And you know how through, through those, through those uh, kings and chronicles, when the, when the kings are talked about, usually it says, uh, for one king it'll say, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then another king it'll say, he did what was right. In the, Hezekiah is one of those dudes who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So he's a good king. And it tells, it tells everything. He burnt the Asherah poles. He, he knocked down all the, all the altars to the false gods and everything. And, and he smashed the bronze snake because the Israelites have been burning incense to it. So here's Hezekiah, a good king, who says, death to what God did in the past, because it's a new day. Now this theme of spring in the kingdom of God, it's true on a personal level, it's true for us day by day, but as a church, as a corporate community here today, maybe you're feeling a little bit apprehensive about the future here. Murray, Murray and Kaz have been here for less than a year and maybe you're feeling a bit nervous. Maybe you're having nostalgic feelings about a bygone era. I want to tell you that nostalgia is a, is a thief. Nostalgia is a nice feeling, but it's a thief. It's a thief that robs you of your present joy and it will rob you of your chance to embrace the new things God might be doing. And I want to ask you this morning, as you think about where you're at as a church right now, some of you will be really excited, but others are a bit apprehensive and a bit nervous. If you are to embrace the new things that God wants to do here, you need to see death to the things that even God did in the past. And so, where are you at? Let me, again, do a bit of a summary to see the three ways that this theme is so important to each of us. The first thing is, do you even have life in Jesus? Have you come to understand what his death meant for you, that you might have eternal life with him? Is that true for you? Even if it is true for you then, 
Are there things of the old order that need to die? Old resources, old priorities. Are there things that still have their, their tendrils around your ankles that you need to chop and say, no, death to you. Death to you. I'm not fighting for those resources anymore. I have everything I need in the kingdom of God through its king, Jesus. Or is there an apprehension in you, an anxiety about where Humeridge is at and the future that God has for this church? And that apprehension is, is causing a longing for the past, a longing for what God did in the past. But there's a bronze snake in your heart that needs to be smashed. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for spring. Thank you that you have, in your creation of the world, created such beauty. And at springtime, we see that beauty being rebirthed yet again. We thank you for new life. We thank you that this principle that is true in the natural world is true in your kingdom, that we have new life in Christ and that we can continually put to death the old way so that we might experience and embrace more and more of the new. Jesus, help us as we think about that to know the things that still have a grip on our hearts, the things that still have a grip on our minds that we need your help to put to death that we might embrace the resources and the priorities of heaven. And Jesus, my prayer for Hume Ridge, what, what an exciting time. And yet, as one person is excited, another person might be a bit nervous and a bit apprehensive about the future. But God, you're doing a new thing here. It's a new day. And with the new day, there's new life. And so whatever the bronze snakes are in, in our hearts and minds, Jesus, help us to identify them. And then like Hezekiah did, to smash them. God, we don't want to be attached to the things that you did or the, even the things that you will do. We want to be attached to you. We want to be an intimate, actually, we want to be in passionate pursuit of you, Jesus, because ultimately we know that you are in passionate pursuit of us. And so help Humeridge to be a church that embraces the new life that you give. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.